But then I realized not only do I need to like let fear sit next to me, fear actually shows me that I'm on the right path. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Before we start today's episode, I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite things on the internet, the Sibling Revelry Project. Created by writer-photographer Elizabeth McGuire, it's an ongoing photography project capturing the spirit of siblinghood through images and interviews. Liz features siblings of all ages and backgrounds in their natural environments, highlighting the unique stories and universal truths of life with siblings. I love how Liz tells a whole family story in just nine pictures, and I encourage you to check it out on Instagram at Sibling Revelry Project or on the web at SiblingRevelryProject.com. And now, on to the show. Hey everybody, how's it going? Can you believe it's already the end of July? That went fast. I just got back from four days in Philadelphia for my first visit to the Podcast Movement Conference. I love Philly. I'm always happy to go there. That's where I went to college. The conference itself was super interesting, borderline overwhelming. Someone gave me a button that said, ask me about my podcast. And by day four, I had taken it off my bag for fear that someone else might. Kind of exhausting, but I got a ton of ideas for new stuff I'd like to try for the show, including some ways to get more audience participation that I think could be fun. So follow Midlife Mixtape on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and I'll be sharing some ways for you to get involved in the days to come. The other big thing that happened was I won the grand prize giveaway. I trained my business card to jump up at exactly the right time, and you guys, I have been given the keys to the Ferrari of podcast recording equipment, thanks to the nice people at Talk Shoe and Heil Sounds. I'm getting like a top of the line microphone and headphones. I don't even know if I'm worthy of this, but I'll adjust. I'll be fine. So uh, once that arrives, I'll let you guys know when I start recording with that and you can let me know if the sound quality is different, but that was worth going for. I also have a couple of dates for you guys to add to your calendars. On Friday, August 10th, I'll be interviewing author Todd Statman at A Great Good Place for Books in the Montclair Village District of Oakland. We'll be chatting about his latest book, So Good It's Bad. That's the title. That's not my description of the book. It's a sequel to his first novel, Please Don't Be Waiting for Me. Not surprising for a guy who once played in a punk band, Todd's writing has this cool kind of punk DIY sensibility that I really enjoy, and I'm looking forward to learning more about the new book when I chat with Todd. So again, it starts at 7 p.m. on Friday, August 10th, and if you're in the Bay Area, I hope you will come out and join us at A Great Good Place for Books. The second date is a ways out, but I know how much of a heads up you guys need for this. The next midlife mixtape 80s dance party is on the books at the Cat Club in San Francisco for Saturday, October 13th. I will be guest DJ and I'll be spinning some great 80s alternative dance music. I've already started my potential playlist in the notes file on my iPhone and that's where I do all my mixing and matching and sorting. I have some Scritti Politi out there. I've got some Violent Femmes that I heard the other day in a store somewhere that I'd forgotten about. Oh, I know. I have an old Bowie song that I'd forgotten about too. So send me your song requests and get your sitters lined up now because we are going to be out late. Yes, it starts at nine o'clock. No, you are not dead yet. You can do this 
this one night of the year. And it's a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood. So in all seriousness, it's a great way to raise money for a great cause and get your dance on. So that is Saturday, October 13th. If you're in the Bay Area, come join us. If you're not in the Bay Area, you can make your plans to get here. You've got plenty of time. I am so pleased to bring you today's interview with my friend, Ann Immig. Ann founded the national live reading series, Listen to Your Mother, which has been on stage in 55 cities and counting, and she edited the acclaimed anthology, Listen to Your Mother, What She Said Then, What We're Saying Now, which came out from Putnam in 2015. And yes, full disclosure, I have an essay in that book. Ann's an award-winning humorist and performer who spends most of her time signing permission slips and sweeping up cat litter. She took a break from the cat litter to talk with me, so away we go. Welcome to the podcast, Anne Immig. How are you? I'm great, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for leading me through some vocal exercises before we started the interview, (laughs) because I feel like my tonsils are in a really good place right now. So would the audience perhaps like a vocal exercise? We can pause and they can just glide it out, you know? (laughs) Oh, as you guys can tell, Anne and I know each other a little bit, so I'm going to just work really hard. I told her if I laugh too hard, I'm afraid it'll bring on a hot flash, so I'm just going to try to lock it down. But there's something about Anne's sense of humor and my audience capabilities that just works really well together, and pretty much everything she does sends me into a fit. So we're going to try to keep it serious, though. So no pressure. No, no, no pressure. pressure. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because I have been such an admirer of the work you've done through Listen to Your Mother and your latest project. But, you know, we have to start with the most important question first. Anne Immig, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? I went to Have see... you ever been to a concert? <laughs> That's a fair question, <laughs> given that you know how limited my musical tastes are. But I have been to concerts and my first concert was with my babysitter that I was in love with in like the fourth or fifth grade. And he and his siblings took me to see, ready, the nylons. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the nylons? I do. It's a strange choice for a fourth grader and her babysitter. I think he had tickets. He was in college. Probably he was my camp counselor and I knew the family. And I think he had tickets with his friends or siblings and ended up with an extra one and so took me. And the sidebar is that- It's very sweet. It was so sweet. I had terrible gas pains throughout the concert (laughs) and I didn't want him to know. And so when he would look away, I would cringe in pain. And then he, probably because I was so nervous, I don't know. And then he turned to me at one point and was like, Anne, what's this? And like made a cringe face. (laughs) So humiliating. So you're still in touch with him today? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> his, no doubt his parents literally live on my block, and I love them. But oh. I need to follow up the story by telling you the next two concerts. Okay. My brother, I think, and I got tickets to Sting, Dream of the Blue Turtles, which I almost called Island of the Blue Dolphins <laughs> when I was thinking about it. And then... The Butthole Surfers at Club okay. DeWash with uh, friends' parents. So that is like so representative of all the weird influences that I had. So my follow-up question to this was going to be, have you gotten any better at finding new music? Because I know you're married to someone who loves music and you have two sons who I imagine as they're hitting their teens, I'm sure they're kind of up on it. You not so much. I've had to put together a couple of CDs for you and send them over like an emergency RX of music for you. I know. It's really weird. And my sister, it turns out she's the same way. 
we love silence. And I don't know if that's just being like parenting. <laughs> I don't know if parenting just like turned me into somebody who desperately craves silence. Yeah, I get that. I listen to music in the car, like the radio. It's sad. I, I think all, all your listeners are slowly dropping off at this point. Um, Come back. And Come I understand back. that. No, it's no. You know what? As I always say, this podcast, you don't have to love music to love this podcast. The reason I start with this question is because it's a good level set. I think everybody's got an interesting story about their first concert. And then we can move on to the real meat of the conversation, which is what we're going to do here. And one, you know, one of the main areas I wanted to talk to you about is the wonderful work that you've done through Listen to Your Mother. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is a national stage reading series that Anne started on Mother's Day in 2010. And at that time, and that was in Madison for an audience of how many? About 300. 300 people. So I know when you started it, you have said, I've seen in interviews, you said you wanted to create a space for sharing motherhood stories that you wanted to hear. At the time, how old were your kids? You know, like a two-year-old and a kindergartner, something like that. From that very modest start in Madison, it's exploded nationally and internationally. And you uh, came out with an anthology for the Listen to Your Mother anthology through Putnam as well. So what I wanted to ask you is, what was it about sharing stories of motherhood that felt so important to you? And what did you learn as it grew? What was the real impact of sharing those stories? What was important to me about it is I actually went and got a master's in social work. And the essay I wrote to get into that program was all about basically the therapeutic effect of listening and bearing witness and how important I realized that that is. And so I think at the fundamental core of Listen to Your Mother is that, that how powerful it is for people to listen, but also to like give voice to their, their stories and whatever they're going through. And then for an audience to experience that, well, at the time we called it a me too, it means something else now, but just that no one is alone, no matter what you're going through. And Nancy, you and I were really immersed in blogging at that time. And so we were really immersed in stories and story sharing. And I had pretty clear separation between my online life and my in real life that I wanted to bring together. I wanted people in Madison and my community to come together around stories in a way that was happening online. And when you do the live readings, do you think the impact is different than when people read a blog post or an essay online? What's the impact of having somebody standing right there talking to you about a true story from their life, a true story of mothering? Oh, and I should clarify, listen to your mother. It's a place where people can share stories about having a mother, being a mother. In my case, when I read in the San Francisco show in 2013, it was about all the other mothers in our lives, the women and, and even men in our lives who, who are maternal toward us. So it's not just for mothers. I just want to make sure that's clear. Right. It's all about how motherhood impacts every single person. And in fact, in that anthology, the very first essay is by a non-mom by choice. And we put that essay first for this exact right. reason. Um, but back to your question, first of all, a lot of people don't have the time or the interest in reading stories online like like we do. Like the people who are so immersed in, and especially at the time, again, because blogging and sort of the attention span online has changed dramatically. So I was really aware of the fact that 
what we were so accustomed to, the story sharing, really wasn't happening in the same way for a lot of people. The other piece of this that I think is so worthwhile is that when it's on a stage, there's no comment section. Hmm. Like you experience the story, you have to sit with it and listen to it. And you don't get to talk back. And I think that's super valuable right now. My experience of being in the audience of Listen to Your Mother, it was always like you were given a gift because these stories, the ones that made it onto the stage are always very vulnerable, very honest. And while they're specific to that person, there's something universal in each of them. Yes. Like you would go to a show and you would see, if not your story, something similar. And if it didn't move you or make you feel less alone... It lightened your load for the time you were there. It made you laugh. It energized you. And the piece of Listen to Your Mother that ended up really fueling me and exciting me over time, a lot of people talk about implicit bias right now. It's that bias that we all carry around with us that we're, most of us are not aware of. And I thought that Listen to Your Mother was such an amazing exercise in implicit bias because somebody would come up to the microphone and you didn't even know that you had preconceived notions about this person that you've never seen before. And then they would share a story that in some way would shock you. Like, I can't believe that this person said that. And you're, meanwhile, just quietly sitting in the audience and you're realizing, oh, well, that's exactly it. That's implicit bias. Like, I made this whole set of assumptions about this person without even knowing it. And then their story surprised me in such a way. And you just sit there quietly and think about right. it. You made a very deliberate choice to make sure that Listen to Your Mother as it grew, because it started from that first show every year, there were more cities and more cities and more cities where Anne had producers who were pulling together the same kind of experience and some story set for people to listen to. And as it got bigger, you made sure that you baked in diversity and outreach and um, making sure that you had a vibrant group of stories from all different kinds of people. I'm blanking on what year you brought in the lovely and wonderful Taya Dunn-Johnson to help you do that. And so I wanted to talk, ask you about what was behind your decision to really take that deliberate road towards inclusion and diversity and how hard was it to achieve? So it was baked in from the very beginning. I live in Madison, Wisconsin, which is known for being on these lists of best places to live in the country, and at the same time, having the single worst outcomes for African-American children in Dane County, where I live, in the whole country at the same time. So um, I knew, and I think it is that like social work piece of this, of me, that was always in this project, but I knew I did not want to have a show claiming to be the voices of motherhood that were only the voices of like 30-something white women. So it was my intention from the start in, in that first show. And there was, you know, I was somewhat successful in that first show. And it took time and a lot of intention. And it was never, while we made some strides, there was always far more of a ways to go than the successes we had. But yes, um, Taya, I think, was in our 2012 show in D.C., and I don't remember how it is that we even started corresponding, but I had started learning more about the way that white supremacy works in our country and the way that organizations' intent versus impact, great, you know, you can have really good intentions and really feel miserably. And one thing I knew that if you want to create diversity and inclusion in a meaningful way, you need to have people at every level. 
And so I invited Taya to come onto our national team, which was like three people at the time. And she was thrilled to be asked. And this was a grassroots project. So we had a very limited window and amount of control and influence. So in some cities, the efforts were received and people ran with it. And in other cities, not so much. So, you know, I can't claim like this wild success, but it was definitely the intent from the beginning and something that we um, consciously worked on throughout. Yep. I think for a lot of well-intentioned white people like us, we used to believe that if you just like, well, I, I, I threw a sign up that said all are welcome, that that was being inclusive. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that like very right. earnestly. And my sister, who was a professional in this world, I had a lot of my racial justice education has come from her. And she did a TED Talk about the difference between an open door and a meaningful invitation. And I really took that to heart. And, and part of that is, yeah, you as the organizer going outside of your comfort zone and supporting other people, you know, a favors based approach just feels like more white supremacy, really. Like, can you help me make my project look better? It's not going to work for people, you know, but showing up to their events and creating relationships over time. It takes time. It took years. Madison show started to look really different over years. Right. People have to be willing to put in the time and have the patience to keep their eye on what the end goal is. And and, and the discomfort. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. yeah. In 2017, you made a big decision to step away while well, you were still at the top of your game. That's right. And I wanted to ask you about that because at midlife, it's really hard to step away from things that are working well, even though you know that they are not the thing that you are meant to be doing at that point. And I think for a lot of us, you know, it's scary to make a change. It's certainly scary to make a change when things are going pretty well. You know, sometimes you have to get really miserable to want to move on. And I think it's very brave to make a change when things are still going okay. So what was behind your decision to, and I'm not sure exactly how to characterize because listen, your mother lives on. It's still, people can license it and it does still happen every year, but your involvement with it changed. So can you kind of characterize what the change was and then how it felt to go out at that point? The show lives on as a licensed theatrical production. The original project that was this grassroots that started out sort of as this blogging phenomenon put on stage in real life, that culminated in 2017 with a grand finale season. But then I made a version that people can use any time of year. It doesn't even have to be Mother's Day anymore. People can do them any time of year. They can do them, you know, as a fundraiser for their organization or with a community theater, even a professional theater. And that would be if somebody's listening to this and might want to get involved. Miracleortwo.com. So miracle or number two.com backslash LTYM show, I think. I'll find it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah. So, um, and the nice thing about that is people can do the show as it was originally intended, where they just use local people with their own original stories. Or I also compiled sort of a script that people can have actors read these true original stories. So that offering, I'm not sure has been utilized yet, but it does exist, which for like a more professional theatrical realm might be mm -hmm. appealing, but that's a whole other thing to go. So to go back to your question about when I left and why I left and how that felt. 
and especially like regarding midlife, a couple things. First of all, what looked like a sprawling mansion on the outside. Listen to your mother and all its properties. This YouTube channel, 2,000 videos. This book, all this national media, hundreds of shows. You know, it looked like the sprawling mansion. But if you walk around to the other side, it was actually an Ikea kit with five women like <laughs> holding up beams and being like, you hold that while I go pee, okay, but I really have to go too for like years. So um, we were not on the top of our game on the inside. We never had any business growing the way we did if you're looking at this from a structural integrity and a business move from the beginning. And then we would like double in size every year. And it took a toll. I worked with the best team of women, Deb Rocks, Melissa Wells, Stephanie Precourt, and Taya Dunn-Johnson. We're still really close friends. That's the A-team right there. Oh, I mean, it was so just clear communications, no BS, no drama, lovely team. And at the same time, it was just way, way, way beyond our capacity. We were not at the top of our game on the inside. What was very hard was knowing that I was letting people down. The disappointment from the, all these directors and producers who wanted to keep doing the show. Because at the time that I sort of pulled the plug, I did give everybody a whole additional season, like knowing that there were people who'd been doing the show in their community for three, four, five, six years. I wasn't, I don't want to just say, 2016 is it? Like, sorry, everybody, because I got to tell you, 2016 was the top of our game. It would have been the perfect right. send off. But I just, we felt like we owe this to all these people who've invested so much to be able to plan and celebrate. We owe it to the project to really be able to celebrate all that we've accomplished into this grand finale season. And at the time that I made that decision, I didn't know that this licensed theatrical opportunity would come up where people actually could and do continue to do the show. So it was really hard. It felt like I was pulling something away from people. And I am such a people pleaser. So, you know, right in line with the midlife stuff of trying to extricate myself from that. And it was really, really tough. And I was exhausted and I was burnt out. And even that last year committing to do that, like when you know you're done, then you're like, and we're going to do right. a whole other year because this thing is locally, it's a six month project. Nationally, it's pretty much a year round effort, especially when we were still doing the right. videos. Because so, you're finding sponsors and booking yes. your booking venues. And there's yes. a ton of work that goes into something that looks relatively simple, just yes. 12 stories right on stage, yes. but it's a ton of background yeah. work. But you found a way, I think, to let people celebrate the project. And again, through this licensing opportunity, it lives on the, sorry, listen to your mother is bigger than you are, Anne. It's the phenomenon lives on. Yes. But you must feel proud of that. Very, very proud. I'm not somebody who was aware of wanting to have a legacy in my life beyond my family, I would say, and, you know, beyond being a person who contributes to the good of the world. But having said that, it is very satisfying that these stories live on in so many ways and have changed lives and empowered women. At its core, it became a women's empowerment and leadership incubator beyond being a show. Boy, I really am hilarious. See how like I just keep you rolling with the laughter? I'm going to pivot in a second. You're going to laugh. So don't worry. 
but it's but it's an important part of that story, and that is, you know, that it's also a community. So anybody who's read and listened to your mother, it's kind of a shorthand. Somebody will say, "Oh, do you know so and so? She was listening to your mother, DC." And I, oh no, but I kind of get her already because, uh, you know, I was I was on the stage in San Francisco. I emceed one of the years in San Francisco, and um, yeah, it's and I've been in the audience many times, and it's just and you're in the book, and I'm in the book too. I'll put a link to the book, everybody. It's the Listen to Your Mother anthology. Um, yeah, there's some good stories in there. You guys can hear about my aunt Noonie. Noonie. All right. So you so you step away, which is a scary thing to do, but it's the right decision for you. You have kind of an incubator year for yourself where you're a little bit quiet. You're figuring out what's next. And you then you take on something that's even scarier than putting on a stage show with a bunch of other people, jumpsuits. Not just any jumpsuit, the one you wore on stage. <laughs> when you did a solo show in June of 2018. So a lot of us, I think, would have been like, okay, I'm out. I did this, you know, this whole big project. And you took this opportunity to figure out what you wanted to express to the world, what story you wanted to share in a bigger way. And you wrote your own stage show. So can you talk about what that show was? And I know it took a lot of bravery to go back into making yourself so vulnerable on the stage. And to wear a jumpsuit. Yes, because everybody's wondering, <laughs> is that the name of the show? Jumpsuits! Exclamation mark. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of back-channel texting between Anne and me as we both contemplated, should I buy a jumpsuit? I don't know. Should I buy a jumpsuit? What do you think about jumpsuits? That's Be prepared the... to try on a lot of them is my caveat there. And have a wingwoman who will zip you up after you, you know, if you yes. need to go to the bathroom. Limit the fluids. <laughs> Limit the fluids. I suggest lozenges. Lozenges over fluids. <laughs> Um, okay. To your, to your question, this show is called you again, which is relevant because as much as it seemed like a really bold, scary, brave thing to do, and it was terrifying. It kept me up at night for a while. It was also a coming back home for me. I started out my professional life as a musical theater actress. It's how I met my husband at a theater who he was a drummer. I was an actress. It turns out you can't really divorce huge pieces of yourself. And I say that because I spent my whole childhood and young adult life singing. I played tons of amazing roles. And then I, even more powerful than my desire to sing as I grew older, was my desire to have a family. And I really like took that and fell into it hard and ran with it and thought being a mom would be the be all end all to my life. And then it turned out oh, actually, there's still a lot more to me than this desire to be a mom. So over the year you talked about, after I wrapped up Listen to Your Mother, all of a sudden this huge piece of me came back. That desire to sing just came back in a really big way. And it was scary because I hadn't done any singing on stage in 20 years, and I couldn't imagine a context unless I created one. I've become this person who creates my own opportunities because – my kids are now going into middle school and going into high school, so I wasn't going to go do some community theater thing at night those hours. I have a traveling husband a lot of the time. I'm carpooling. And another irony is, you know, when I was a young actress, I couldn't have imagined. I was terrified of public speaking, even though I was a stage actress, because I was just memorizing saying other people's words. Right. I had nothing to say, right? Now, you know, once I got, it's been 10 years since I've been writing my own material and sharing it in one way or another, the idea of like going and memorizing a script, now that seems foreign to me. It's really kind of interesting to just, just have this totally different take on the whole thing. 
So kind of going back into like a fishnets wig situation <laughs> seems a little bizarre to me right now. And just the logistics with my life. So I'm like, you know, joining the temple choir is not going to cut it. Like, that's not what I'm missing. I'm missing the feeling of being on a stage and belting one out. Right. So long story short, I decided I'm just going to go sing with a friend, not for an audience. And I think I knew I was looking for permission. And sure enough, this accompanist music director friend of mine was like, you sound great. You should do something. And I think I knew I wanted to do something. And I ended up using some of my favorite musical theater show tunes and pairing them with my own writing thematically. And it came together so quickly and so easily in the way things do when they feel meant to be. So it's called You Again, which comes from something I wrote years ago about the way that Ben and I, my husband, sort of get through our daily annoyances with each other. Like we would just kind of turn it into a joke. Oh, it's you again. Right. There, there you are again, being you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and ultimately with midlife, it's recognizing that so much of that is actually about ourselves. Right. So it's like yourself in the mirror every day. And so many of those annoyances with other people, it's really your own issues. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's you again revisiting my former musical theater self. And it's you again in our relationships. And it's you again in the mirror every day. And I had so much fun riffing on this theme in motherhood and marriage and midlife. And I and I on purpose flipped those because you definitely do not need to be a parent to identify with these themes in midlife. So it was midlife, marriage, motherhood. Well, and it's also you again, because as your kids get older, you've got a little more time to do things like listen to yourself and discover that, oh yeah, I really miss doing a musical theater. I really miss being on the stage. So there's that aspect. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's no end to what you again means. And I keep getting like almost struck over the head with, oh, I thought I knew what I was exploring. And then here's a whole other level mm -hmm. of like, I had to get myself on stage and do this project to get back to myself again, because in some ways, Listen to Your Mother took me really far afield from who I am and what I'm comfortable with in the like entrepreneurial sort of managing people ways that I was definitely not super comfortable with. Of course, it was great learning for me for that reason, but this kind of the show helped bring me back to my core. Okay. So for somebody listening to this who thinks they might know what their what their personal you again thing is, and it might not be, probably isn't standing on stage because I don't know how many musical theater majors I have listening to the show, but for whatever it is... <laughs> You might be surprised. I'm, I might be big on Broadway. I don't know. But for those people who are listening and thinking, okay, well, you know, Anne's done this thing that was terrifying. Maybe I could try this. How did you get through it? I knew intuitively that this was something I wanted and needed to do. And I really thought it would resonate with other people. And I just kept telling my ego to take a back seat and anything I say that sounds like really wise has probably come from a mentor. I, I have a lot of great mentors and I have a career coach. And, you know, a few years ago I was talking to her and I've been working with her since I was in my twenties. She's 76 years old now. She's amazing. Her name's Robin Shearer. And I said, Robin, when am I going to stop being afraid? And she's like, have you ever considered you might need to just make friends with fear? Cause it's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> I was like, Oh, crap. But then I realized not only do I need to like let fear sit next to me, fear actually shows me that I'm on the right path. 
And I don't mean the fear when something's really wrong in your life. I mean that discomfort that you and I were talking about that feels like terrifying. But now I realize, oh, that's a sign that I'm on the right path. So what one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you? Or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? Well, if I'm honest, it's the same advice that I tell myself every day that I still need to learn, which is trust your path. It's all one path, especially when it comes to career. And it's it's a very hard thing to do. I mean, I'm sort of tend toward impatience and wanting to know what the outcome's going to be. And that really takes you out of the moment and the process. And I've just really learned that there's value in process and there's value in not knowing. That's that's pretty much it. I, I So in some ways, I've learned nothing. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> And in other ways, it's pretty satisfying to look back and see how those pieces all added upon one another to bring me where I am. And it's the same lesson in different costumes over and over and over again. And with that fantastic image and image, the same lesson in different costumes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you being here. Um, I will have clips up, hopefully. Anne, will you give me a clip from your solo show so I can share this? I'm putting you on the spot. Yes. Oh, and I do quote Pat Benatar in my show. So So Anne's about to drop the mic. I better wrap up the interview. I did include Pat Benatar. Boom. Goodbye. (laughs) I will talk to you later. Thanks for coming on the show. It's funny, back in March or April, when Anne told me she was going to do this solo show and was pretty much terrified at what she'd gotten herself into, I said, okay, I'm going to interview you for the podcast once it's over, because I was really curious to get her take once it was behind her. So I've basically been waiting for this interview for months, and I hope you found it as inspiring as I did. Let me know what you thought via email at dj at midlifemixtape.com or find me on social media at midlifemixtape. And as always, if you're enjoying this show, please consider leaving a review for the Midlife Mixtape podcast wherever you're listening or sharing it with a friend. This is when I usually do a big reveal of next week's guest, but there's a little story behind the next episode that I think is better told with facial expressions and hand gestures via Facebook Live. So if you're not a fan of the Midlife Mixtape page on Facebook already, now's the time. I promise I will do a dramatic rendition of this announcement over there later on this week, probably on Friday. It's a corker. I am so, so excited about this guest. I cannot believe... Anyway, you just got to hear the story behind it. All I can say is I'm glad that every one of my guests reminds me of the need for resilience and our capability for resilience at midlife because I needed it this time around. All right, you guys, I hope you have a wonderful week and I will talk to you soon. I wanna be, I wanna be free by